Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. This week we will be finishing our short series in the third missionary journey of Paul. Um, if you guys remember, what's happened so far is that Paul was in Ephesus for a long time. He was training church leaders, um, working, making tents for a little bit. Um, there was a big riot that happened there. A bunch of stuff happened in Ephesus. And he was actually in Ephesus. This wasn't like a short, super short-term trip. He was there for three years. So, I mean, this is like a pastoral visit. More than a pastoral visit, a pastoral like, job that he had there for about three years. And so then he leaves Ephesus after the riot. And as he's leaving, he goes to visit some other churches that he had planted on his earlier mission journeys. And now he's back in Asia Minor, which is where Ephesus is, modern-day Turkey. And he is about to set sail for Jerusalem, like the next day. And so what he does is he writes a, sends a note to his, um, his elders and pastors and the people he had trained while he was in Ephesus, all of his leaders. And he says, hey, come down to Miletus, which is a port city, um, and come see me off. I want to share one more thing with you um, before I go because he's expecting to never see them again. So when Paul has one more night with all of these leaders he's worked with for so many years, what does he tell them? What is the most important thing he thinks he needs to leave them with? And that's what we're going to read today. So would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? This is Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have, declared, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. 
Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard and remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Um, and for this passage in particular. I pray, Lord, that this morning through it, you would uh, open our eyes to see you more clearly and to give you praise, honor, and glory. I pray, Lord, that um, you would move me out of the way so that we can see you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I saw a funny video this week. Um, it's a news story. It's actually from 2018. Um, if you don't know this, it's actually not uncommon for the news in Los Angeles, California, to cover high-speed chases. I don't know if they just happen more there, if it's close to Hollywood, so they're just so used to it. But there's high-speed chases all the time. This one was not a white Bronco, but it was a black sedan. And they're following this black sedan down the highway, and the news crews have their helicopter up in the air watching this, uh, this black car speed away. Apparently, it had been stolen and the news anchors are there commenting on this black car and talking about the person who stole it and what they know. They obviously don't know anything. They're just making it up on the spot. And they're, they're trying to like make it entertaining, I guess, for the people watching the news, what is happening in this high-speed chase. Um, keep everyone up to date on what's going on with this stolen black car. So... Black car is going down the road. It goes under an overpass. So it loses sight of the camera for just a moment. Then it comes out again and the news crews follow it. And they're like, all right. Oh, he seems to be slowing down. Oh, he's turning in. I think he's turning into a gas station. Is this a gas station? Yes, yes, Bill. I think this is a gas station. He's turning into the gas station. Okay. Is he getting gas? Is he out of gas? Uh, he pulls up nonchalantly and parks in front of the door. And he opens the door. He's getting out. Oh, he's wearing brown boots and an orange uh, work construction jacket, and he's nonchalantly locking the door and walking into the convenience store. Oh, wait, guys, I think we have the wrong car. So what had happened was the car, the black car, had gone under the underpass along with another black car had gone under. The other car comes out first, and so they start following the wrong car, and this poor guy who's probably just getting a cup of coffee before a long day of work is now making it, made it onto the local news, morning news station, and they realize pretty quickly that, oh, I don't think this is the right guy, right? Who you're following matters. Who you are following matters. We love to follow people. Okay? In general, it's part of being human. We like to follow people. Maybe you've not noticed this about yourself, but everyone likes to follow somebody, right? Whether that's a, you have a favorite author who you love to read, or you have a favorite politician who is standing up for the things you want them to stand up for, or you have a favorite celebrity who you appreciate 
what they have to say about things, or you like following them on Instagram, or you have public figures you like to hear speak or, or teach or those kinds of things. We like to follow people. Why do we like to follow people? Well, one, I think sometimes we're inspired by their passions. It's, it's exciting and draws you in when someone's really excited about something that you want to be excited about, so you are inspired by them. Um, maybe you're excited, maybe you want to follow them because you just feel like this person can express something so clearly that you believe to be true. Something you've wanted to say yourself but haven't been able to say it, but this person seems to be so good at putting your thoughts into words. Um, maybe you follow someone because you admire them, right? You really want to be like them. They have the life you want, they have the gifts you want, and so you follow them because you want to be like them. Uh, maybe you want to learn from their expert perspective. They're an expert in a field that you want to be an expert in or you want to learn from or they can teach you how to do something you want to do. Um, or maybe you just want to be a part of their cause, right? You want to be a part of what they're standing up for and what they're fighting for. You want to join the movement that they're leading. None of this is bad. We all like to follow people. But the problem is if you follow the wrong person can lead to trouble. For the KTLA news crew, it led to them looking like fools. But for some of us, following the wrong person can be worse than that. And actually can be disastrous. It can be dangerous. It can be damaging. This is absolutely and especially true in the church. This is especially true in the church. All you have to do is turn on the media for a little bit and you will see the disaster and the damage left by church leaders. Just this week, we had the release of uh, a report from the Southern Baptist Convention about how many of their leaders had been covering up abuse for years. It's tragic. You can see this in if you listen to the Mars Hill podcast and what happened with the Mark Driscoll's church in Seattle, you can see it in every tradition, in every denomination. Bad leaders lead to destruction, lead to damage, hurt people, hurt the church. These situations also show us that it isn't always obvious who the bad leaders are, right? People follow these people. Some of these people are well-respected, you find out, then have actually been really damaging. You thought that they were such a good leader. They had such an impact on you personally by their ministry. And then you realize that there was major damage being done behind the scenes. Sometimes you don't know. You don't know who the bad leaders are. So how do we tell? That's a question I want to answer this morning, and I hope it's important for those of you, especially those of you who are leaving, okay? This is the time of year. Next Sunday is Goodbye Sunday. We will be saying goodbye to many of you as your jobs or your lives take you to new places, new adventures, um, and hopefully a new church. As you go to a new place and you look for a church where you can continue to grow, continue um, to participate in what God has been doing in you, hopefully during your time here with us in Bogota. Um, you're going to look for a church. And it's important for you, as you're looking for this church, you want to ask yourself what Paul is asking here. Are the leaders healthy? 
Are the leaders healthy? Are they worth following? So how do we know? How do we know if our church leaders are worth following? Oh, by the way, for those of you who aren't leaving, this is important for you too, okay? I know I'm a leader of this church, and so um, I'm hopefully going to go straight from the scriptures here to tell what it tells us about what it means to be a good leader, um, not just for me, um, my opinions, but what the scriptures actually say. But it's actually your job to make sure that your church has healthy leaders. As members of this church, you are responsible for electing your leaders or asking them to step down if they are not healthy. They're not doing what is good if they are not leading well. So it's actually your responsibility. I'm charging you all this morning who are members of this church who are here to care about your church enough to expose unhealth if it's there. I hope it's not. I know there's sin in our church. I know there's brokenness in our leaders. But if there's like patterns of unrepentant unhealth, I hope you will call them out. So let's look at what the Bible says this morning. Let's look at what Paul commands his leaders. Paul has one more chance to talk to all these leaders in Ephesus, this church he has been a part of for so long. One more chance, what does he tell them? He says, watch out. He says, watch out for unhealthy leaders. And you who are leaders, who he's talking to, you guys watch yourselves. Because leadership, bad leaders, following bad leaders, leads to destruction. He warns them of two particular things. He warns them of hollow leaders, and he worries, warns them of hollow gospels. Hollow leaders and leaders with hollow gospels. Hollow leaders. Um, every Christmas, uh, we do a youth Christmas party at the end of the year. Some of you know that because you've been there. And we do a white elephant gift exchange. You guys know what a white elephant gift exchange is? It's when everyone brings a gift. They have this wrapped gift. You don't know what's inside. And one at a time, people go up and they pick a gift. They open it up. They reveal what's inside. And then the next person gets to go. And they can choose to either steal the gift from the first person or they can open a new gift. A lot of the gifts are decent. Some of them are good. And a lot of them are pretty bad. One particular gift was this giant box. I don't remember what year it was. Maybe a few years ago. This really big, beautifully wrapped box. It was the biggest gift out there. It clearly looked the shiniest. It was the one that was most attractive from the outside. So I don't remember who opened it, but someone went and they decided to open it. And so they took back the beautiful layer of of wrapping paper. They opened it up and inside was another beautifully wrapped box. So they took that one out. They unwrapped that. They opened it up. Another beautifully wrapped box, smaller and smaller and smaller until it got down to one small box about this size. They opened it up and it was empty. It looked so good on the outside, but on the inside it was empty. It was hollow. There was nothing of substance inside. It's really easy for us to get distracted by the wrapping paper and to not look inside the box. A lot of pastors have the gift of charisma, have the gift of charm. I'm not saying I do. I'm saying some pastors do have the gift of charisma and charm. They might be powerful preachers. They might be convincing orators. They might always have people coming to their side. And I'm not saying that these qualities are bad. These qualities are common among pastors. It's one of the reasons God's called them to be pastors because of their particular giftings in this way. However, these external gifts, this shiny wrapping paper, we might say, 
does not mean that the inside is healthy. Does not mean the inside is full. The streets of church history are lined with the corpses of those damaged and broken by charismatic and charming leaders who weren't concerned for what is good, but were concerned for themselves. Paul warns us to look inside the box of our leaders. And to particularly look for two things. He says to look for self-promotion and to look for selfish gain. Self-promotion and selfish gain. Self-promotion, verses 18 to 21. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Just in case one day uh, the Ephesian elders are thinking back on their time with Paul and they're kind of wondering, hey, did he, was he just doing that to like promote himself, to like lift up his own ego? Was that why he was like getting us to listen to him? Paul's reminded them, hey, you guys know me. You guys have spent years with me. I've been in your houses. I know your families. I have been myself with you. I've opened my heart to you. You know not only the words that I have spoken, you know my heart. You know my way of life. And you know that I have been humble. I've not been pointing to myself. I've been pointing, what, to Jesus. He says, Paul over and over again showed that his heart was focused not on promoting himself, but as verse 24 says, it was committed to the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Not just in his words and his sermons, but also in the way he lived his life. Paul is saying we don't just evaluate our leaders by their words and their gifts. We evaluate them on the way they live among us. Are they humble or are they self-promoting? He also warns them of selfish gain. It says down in verses 33 to 35, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He wasn't using his ministry among them to gain something for himself. He even doesn't mean that all pastors do this all the time or should do this. There's other times when Paul is supported by churches that he serves. But at this time, he thought it was important that he gets his own job. He works as a tent maker to make sure that they know that I am not doing this for your money. I'm not doing this to lift myself up. I'm only doing it because I want to point you to Jesus, because I care about you. I love you. And not only that, I want, to be, I want you to use your money, not for me. I want you to use it to take care of of the poor. Blessed is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul is saying that leaders should have a heart that is shaped by the gospel, a heart where Christ is glorified, not the pastor, a heart where others' needs are put above the pastor's own. 
Is the pastor more concerned or the leader more concerned about his own needs or is he concerned about the needs of the people? In other words, it doesn't matter more, it doesn't matter the gifts of charisma or charm or preaching that one has as much as it matters the motivation that they're doing these things. Check the heart of your leaders to see if self-promotion or selfish gain are their driving forces. But how do we do that? That's the real question, right? How do we do that? How do we check on the inside? How do we open the box and see what is in there? I've read an article by one pastor um, who wrote a lot, writes a lot about this, and he calls this self-promotion, this desire for selfish gain, um, narcissism, which is a, an accurate way of describing uh, what this is happening. He says, how do you spot a pastor with narcissistic tendencies? How do you spot a narcissist in your pulpit? Here's a few of his recommendations, um, which I think are, are pretty accurate and pretty biblical. Uh, one, a narcissistic pastor will often, or a leader, will drive the conversation towards themselves. They will make themselves the prime example, or they will make themselves the person um, who is at the center of everything. They will keep bringing it back to them. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Right? He is the center. Uh, A narcissistic leader will also place the welfare of the greater ministry over the needs of the sheep. So for instance, if I were to place the success of UCB and the amount of people we have in our sanctuary over the actual the individual needs of you guys. What does that look like? Well, sadly, we can just look at the recent report from the SBC, right? It's super sad. But you see a number of pastors, not everyone in this SBC. I have dear friends in that denomination. But you can see pastors who decided they wanted to protect their large ministries and to protect themselves from liability rather than to actually care for the victims of the abuse. Rather than to care for those who have been damaged. Rather for them to, than to care for the truth that needed to be exposed and the future victims that could potentially be affected. You see, why is that? Why is that narcissism? That's because their concern, their ministry has become their glory. The success of the ministry, the external look of the ministry has become their glory rather than the self-sacrificial nature of giving myself for the sheep. You know what? You might lose members if you're honest about what happened in a church. You might lose people if you're honest about sin that's happened in a church, if there's abuse or that kind of thing. But that is much more important to lose them to be honest, to be vulnerable than to just prop up yourself. Be careful of that one. I'd say another one, maybe even the biggest one, is they don't take correction. They don't put people in their lives who can call them out when they're in sin. They don't put people in their lives who can, uh, uh, can challenge them, who can question their decisions. Everyone needs accountability, everybody. Not just members, the pastors too. We all need accountability. We, need, we are sinners, we're all sheep 
the end of the day. We need, we need people who are going to call us to Jesus when we're running away. We all need accountability. We need to put people around us to help us lead. We need to share our authority, right? We need to share our gifts. If, if, if this church is built around one pastor's gifts, that's not good, right? It's the body. We need the body to be the body, each using their own gifts. And the pastor who doesn't let other people use their gifts might be a narcissist or might have narcissistic tendencies. Finally, they aren't repentant or humble. Or maybe they repent, maybe they say they're sorry, but only as a way of managing their own reputation. They repent of doing wrong, but only when they're caught, or only when it makes them look good just to repent. Right? And that's not true repentance. True repentance is, hey, I am wrong, and I will submit to what everyone else, what the elders think, what the leadership thinks as to what I need to do going forward, right? True repentance when they're caught in sin. I wish those things were always true of our leaders. I wish things were always not true, rather, of our leaders. Fortunately, we've seen all of these. Some of you have read about it in the news. Others, if you have lived it, you've been in churches with abusive or selfish, self-absorbed leaders, and you've experienced the damage that comes from that. It's dangerous, and that's why Paul warns us against it. The box is empty. It's hollow. It doesn't actually have a heart that is filled with Christ and that longs to point to him and away from myself. Longs to point to him and to the needs of others rather than to my own needs. Hollow preachers are part of the problem. The other one is hollow gospels. Hollow or preachers with hollow gospels. This is what he says in verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night, night and day with tears. What do these savage wolves do? These savage wolves who are going to come in and uh, not spare the flock, well, they're going to distort the gospel. They're not going to have a completely different message. They're going to take the gospel and they're going to twist it. Twist it one way or twist it another And twisted gospels have a lot of power because they sound good. They have shiny wrapping paper on the outside. But on the inside, they're empty. They're not gospel at all. They aren't good news at all. To expose the hollow gospels that might be preached in a church or taught in a church, we need to know very clearly what is the true gospel. And Paul reminds us of it here in verse 21. He says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God and repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Where does our salvation come from? It comes from repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That is the gospel. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And as a Christian, you live that life over and over again. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That is the entirety of the gospel. What is that? Repentance means seeing our sin for what it is, recognizing that it's not good, 
in saying, I'm going to leave it at the foot of the cross and I'm going to turn my back on it. And I'm going to walk away. I'm going to ask God's help to help me not do it anymore. And faith is looking to Jesus, saying, you are my Lord. You are my Savior. Your death has accomplished my righteousness. You have paid for my sins on the cross. And in your resurrection, I have new life. I have new life to live for you. That is the gospel, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. This is exactly what Paul talks about later. He later writes a letter to the Ephesians. It's called Ephesians. And he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It is nothing you do that makes you a believer. It is turning to Jesus and what he has done for you. Your works do not make you righteous. Right? That is the gospel. It is Christ's work on your behalf that makes you righteous. And he also says after that, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is a place for works where they always follow your salvation. They do not create it. They do not gain it. Yes, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God wants to change our hearts to make us live for him. Wants to give us new life. But it is never about earning our salvation. That is the gospel. Okay? If that's the gospel, what is the hollow gospels I'm talking about? I'm going to call one of them, I'm going to call it Jesus plus, and the other one, I'm going to call it Jesus minus. Jesus plus is the gospel that says you need Jesus plus something else. You need Jesus plus works. Your works have an influence over God's love for you. You need to earn God's love, or you need to maintain God's love now that you have it through your good works. Or you've sinned, so now you need to make up for your sins. Okay, maybe a lot of you are like, yeah, obviously that's not it. But sometimes the church that you're in subtly teaches those things. Even if it's not directly saying, you need Jesus plus something, you experience in the teaching of the church or in the ethos of the church, or in the, um, the way the church is run, that the gospel message isn't the focus, but the focus is on what you do and on your work. The heart of the Christian life becomes about behavior modification rather than dependence on Jesus, rather than repentance and faith. Jesus plus something. This is so common, and you see it all across Christianity. I know that some of you in here are Catholic, and we're so thankful you're here. We're not a Catholic church. One of the things we disagree with the Catholic church, even though we know that there are people who dearly love Jesus in the Catholic church, is the, this idea that you need Jesus plus certain sacraments to truly be a believer, to truly be a Christian. But this isn't just a Catholic problem. This is an evangelical problem. In the evangelical church, you need Jesus plus your emotional experiences. Jesus plus your faithful church attendance. Jesus plus your involvement in these 17 different Bible studies or discipleship groups. Or Jesus plus the specific discipleship program that we have for you. Or Jesus plus this... uh, you know, not drinking, not gambling, whatever it is. Jesus plus. The Jesus plus gospel is a hollow gospel. 
Why is it a hollow gospel? Because it isn't in good news at the end of the day. It actually is slavery. It's slavery to one of two things. One, it's a, it could be a slavery to pride. Slavery to thinking, I am better than everyone else because I do these things. I am like a good Christian. But more often than not, it's a slavery to shame. The shame of feeling I'm not good enough. Right? I'm never going to live up. God doesn't love me because I'm in sin. Because I did that habitual sin again, God hates me. Or I have to make myself, make my way back to him. I have to make things right before I can go back to the Lord. And that is not the gospel. There's true safety and true security. And the gospel of the true gospel is this, and it is true. It is that there is nothing that you can do to make God love you less if you are trusting in Christ. And there is absolutely nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less and there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. God loves you not because of what you have done, but because of what his son has done on your behalf. Paul is even more, you can tell he's worried about this Jesus plus gospel. Even in his statement here back in 21, which you just read, it says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. It is for Jews and Greeks. Why would he say that? Because he knows that what's going to happen after he leaves is the Jews are going to come in and say, all right, Gentiles, welcome to our Christianity. Um, you can be a Christian if you want, but first you've got to get circumcised. First you've got to do, follow the Jewish dietary codes. First you've got to follow the Jewish this, that, and the other thing. And Paul will write later to, in many of his letters saying, no, it's not about Jews and Greeks. Both of you have the same gospel. It is only repentance of faith. Turning from, turning to, turning from, turning to, turning from, turning to. Turning from their sin, turning to Jesus. That is what it means to be a Christian. And that is good news because it is based not on us, but it's based on Jesus. The other false gospel, or the hollow gospel I would call it, is what I would call Jesus minus. Jesus minus teaches that, yes, Jesus died for your sins. He is what it's all about, but he doesn't really care if you change and he doesn't really challenge your, your way of life. Yeah, he's great. He's loving. He's so wonderful. I'm, you know, awesome. Great. It's Jesus-focused. But it's not really because it's not focused on the part of Jesus that actually longs for you to change. That longs to call you into a new life. That's what Paul is talking about here in verse 27 where he says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. The whole will. Meaning all of the parts of Jesus. Not just the parts that our culture likes right now. Right? Every culture has parts of the scripture that are more appealing to us than other parts. Right? Some parts of scripture validate us. Oh yeah, God loves justice and he loves mercy. He's so gracious. We love that. But we don't love that he loves justice for us. And he loves mercy for them. And there's parts of it we don't like. Right? Every different culture, every different generation has different parts of Scripture that are harder for you than others. And why are they harder? Because they, con they, they confront parts of you or your cultural beliefs that you don't really want to be confronted. They challenge the culture, they challenge your heart, and we don't want that. But Paul doesn't shy away from preaching the whole will. Because all of it is Jesus. We need all of it. 
Because Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I love you. He saves us from something. He saves us from something to something. It's a hollow gospel because if God isn't calling us to change, what is he saving us from? He calls us to repentance from sin, to turning away from sin, turning from it. We don't do this to earn his love, as the Jesus plus gospel might tell you. We don't earn his love, but we do this because he loves you and we trust him and we know he wants what's best for us and we know what he is calling us to, even if we can't see it in the moment, is actually better for us than what we think is good for us. You may have convinced yourself that something is good about you, but that Jesus says is not good. And Jesus is saying, I know better than you. And I want something much better for you than you want for yourself. He's calling us to something good. The good news of the gospel is not something you may have heard. You may have heard this before, even in a church, maybe even with the best of intentions. You might have heard someone say, God loves you just the way you are. That's actually not true. God doesn't love you just the way you are. God loves you despite of who you are. God loves you even though you're messed up. Not be, not, he doesn't love you where you are. He loves you so much that he wants to get you to a better place. He loves you so much that he wants to take you away from where you are and get you to where he wants you to be, where he knows what is best for you. He loves you despite of who you are because he loves you based on the work, not of your work, not based on who you are, but based on who his son is and what his son has accomplished for you in his life, death, and resurrection. That is why Jesus loves you. That is why God loves you. God loves you based on what he has done because of who he is, not because of who you are. The Jesus minus gospel teaches that, you know what? God just loves you where you are. But there's no hope in that because there's no hope for real change. If God just leaves the world like it is, do we really want that? You guys know the world we live in. You guys know the world we live in where there's school shootings and abuse scandals and scary elections and countries that don't do what you want them to do and people who don't do what they want it to do and you who doesn't do who, what they want to do. We need God to come in and we need to change him to change our hearts, make us new, calls us to long for good things. And to lose our self-focus. Beware of church leaders who will not challenge your way of living or leaders that try to ignore or explain away parts of Scripture that maybe wouldn't be popular. What does it say? It says these false teachers are trying to draw people to themselves, right? At the end of the day, when you ignore what Scripture teaches, what's at the heart of that? Yeah, if I preach on certain things that are more difficult, it's going to make me less popular, right, among some people. The aroma of Christ to some people is the aroma of life. To other people, he is the aroma of death. So it doesn't mean I don't preach it graciously. It doesn't mean it's not good news that I'm preaching. It doesn't mean that I beat it over the head or become self-righteous or prideful. But I have to preach the full counsel of God's will, even if it doesn't make me popular, because I'm not trying to draw people to myself. My goal is not to point people to myself. A leader's goal should not be to point them to themselves. The leader's goal should be to point them to Jesus. The whole, the big Jesus, not the little Jesus that we fit in our pocket, but the big Jesus. The one that has reign over every single part of our life and who wants to fix us from the inside out. 
Beware of the preacher or the teacher who does not call to change. Paul is calling us to follow humble, Christ-filled leaders with full, rich gospels. But ultimately, what we need from our leaders is we need them to step out of the way. We need them to step out of the way. The truth is that the best earthly leaders are themselves sheep. The best earthly leaders are still ones, people who are following someone else, following Jesus, the true shepherd. Jesus is actually the ultimate one we want to follow. And so any earthly leader that is worth his salt is good as far as they point away from themselves and they point to Jesus because Jesus is not a hollow leader. Jesus is humble. Jesus is the one who gives up his rights, gives of his glory, gives of himself for our good. He is the one who gives up his own life so that we can have life. He is the one who gives up his reputation so that we can be dignified. He is the one who lowers himself so that he can lift us up. He's also not a hollow gospel. He is the good news. He is truly good news. His death reconciles us to God so that God loves us despite our sin, so that God delights in us as children, even when we are in sin. He loves us so dearly. But his resurrection also accomplishes life. He frees us from the bonds of death and sin so that we can, by the power of Christ's spirit, the Holy Spirit, can grow more and more to love Jesus and to hate our sin. So that our hearts can be convicted of sin and so that we can long more and more to live a free life, a life that is in uh, dependence on Jesus. That is true freedom. This is what God calls us to. God calls us to follow Jesus. He is our ultimate leader, and he is the leader that will never fail us nor let us down. George Whitfield was a famous preacher during the uh, Great Awakening. Very, very powerful speaker. One of the most powerful speakers probably um, that has ever uh, been in the history of the church. People would come from miles and miles around to hear him speak. Uh, he would speak to sometimes as many as 20,000 people all at one time, which is not that impressive today, but back before microphones, that was incredibly impressive. People were dying to hear him. And uh, one Sunday, uh, or one day after preaching, he came down after, from the pulpit after preaching, and after the service, a lady came up to him and said, Mr. Whitfield, you were wonderful. Your words were just so eloquent. And Whitfield responded the exact same way he's responded. He responded every time someone would compliment him like this. He said, I know. The devil already told me that on my way down from the stage. Satan longs to convince preachers that they are what it's all about. That they are the center of everything. That the, the, the church, God's work, all depends on them. But that is not true. That is not true. So with Whitfield, I say to you this morning, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you are the good shepherd the shepherd who leads us to where we need to go. I pray, Lord, that you would give us and our church healthy leaders, leaders who long to push, point to you and not to ourselves. Convict us of any parts of us that still long for self-promotion, selfish gain, or to 
preach a gospel other than the one you've given to us. Pray, Lord, that you would convict us and call us to truth, call us to dependence on you. Pray, Lord, for all of us who aren't leaders, that we would also just have a longing to point to you in our jobs, in our work, in our lives, in our communities, um, and not point to ourselves. May you get the glory. For all of us in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.